Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Let's get started. Let's kick this year off right. 2020. How many of you expected flying cars by now? And the Jetsons. I mean, when I was a kid, 2020 was like, you know, nothing. Come on. Come on, science. Get it together. Um, we're glad that you're here. And if this is your first time, then we're especially glad you're here. We do this every week. And we've been doing it every week for six and a half years since I've been at the helm and probably six and a half before that. Um, so this is a great outreach that uh, Ruth's Chris partners with uh, my ministry, Disciple Dojo. And we do this every week and it's free and the food is free. And we just ask if you like it, just leave a tip because that goes to the kitchen staff in the back. And it's a way to show them that you appreciate what they do for us every week. And afterwards, if you want to get uh, some to-go containers and take some of this with you, you can. So that being said, we are going to get started and kick off this new year with the next book in the Bible, the book of Ruth. We've been, we spent all last year in Joshua and Judges. So it was a dark year, 2019. Uh, not uplifting happy books by any stretch of the imagination. And with the book of Ruth, we turn a corner. And things are, Ruth couldn't be more opposite than Judges. In Judges, almost nobody is good. I mean, very few, but almost nobody is good in Judges. In Ruth, um, every character is good, actually. It's one of the few stories in ancient history where there's, there's no bad guy in Ruth. Uh, everybody's good, and everybody, for the most part, is nominally faithful, if not culturally responsible. And that's what we're going to see. It's a, it's a small book. It's only four chapters. So we're going we're gonna to look at it. We're going to start the year with it. And then in February, I'll be gone for a couple of weeks back over to India. And I've got a pastor friend who's going to come and uh, lead for about three weeks while I'm away. And then when I get back, we'll continue on in our Old Testament journey. But the book of Ruth, uh, as we study it over the next four or five weeks, hopefully you're going to have some assumptions about the book challenge. First of all, if you've never read the book, you're going to read it for the first time. If you have read the book, there's no excuse to not read Ruth. It's four chapters. It's only 80-something verses. So go home and read it and read it next week. Read, every, read the whole book every week so you get a flow of the story. Don't just read a chapter and go, okay, I'm done for this week. It's four, ver it's four chapters, 80-something verses. Psalm 119 itself is longer than the whole book of Ruth. So you can read it. Uh, I, I, I believe in you. You can do it. But the reason that it's important is because of where we've come from and where Israel's come from. We ended the book of Judges in the darkest period in Israel's history until they go into exile. And the ending, if you remember last month, was the, the situation in Israel throughout its history of the Judges was everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody did what they thought was right. And it was a time of, of almost anarchy and lawlessness, but more than anything, it was a time of covenant unfaithfulness. And Ruth is a book all about covenant faithfulness. But it's about covenant faithfulness in the midst of suffering that was brought on by the unfaithfulness of Israel. Ruth is going to start off with suffering and that suffering is not because of anything on the part of Naomi or Ruth, but because of the nation as a whole. So that's what it's important uh, in terms of the setting to keep that in mind. Um, 
Ruth is the only book in the Bible where women speak more than men. It's the only book in the Bible where the, the actual words of women outweigh the words of men. Women are the main characters. <laughs> yeah, you direct your questions to him there. I didn't say that. Uh, <clears throat> Ruth is, it's, it's, a, it's a uniquely feminine perspective. The only other book that probably comes close in terms of giving a female perspective, unedited female perspective, would be the Song of Solomon. And Ruth, for that reason, a number of interpreters have even suggested that Ruth was written by a woman because we don't know who the author is. Tradition holds that it's Samuel, but that's not likely because Ruth is meant to give us the story of the line of King David, and Samuel was dead before David ever really became a prominent figure in Israel's history. I mean, he anointed him, but David, the, the, David dyna, the, the Davidic dynasty didn't arise until uh, after Samuel had already died. So it's highly unlikely that Samuel wrote Ruth. Um, we know that Ruth was written after the time of David's reign, so that would put it in the days maybe of Solomon or later, looking back at during the time of the judges. But the stories would have circulated through the family histories of Boaz and his descendants since the beginning. So when we look at Ruth, it may have been written down after the events, but it very much fits at home during the time of the judges uh, in what it depicts and what we see in the book. Ruth is an interesting book. It's one of two books in the Bible named after a woman. Esther is the other one. Um, and it's the only book in the Bible in the Old Testament named after a Gentile. In the New Testament, Luke would be an example. He was most likely a Gentile. But in the Old Testament, Ruth is the only book named after a Gentile. And that's going to be really important in the book of Ruth as we go through it because of what type of Gentile she was. Ruth was from Moab. After our time in Judges and Joshua, you should know about Moab. Remember, Moab is, was ruled by King Eglon, the big fat king that Ehud stabbed through the belly and on, while he was on the can. Um, Moab was seen as a rival to Israel at times, but before that, before Israel entered into the land, Moab was kind of a thorn in their side. Uh, Moab came from an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. And so for, for a long time, Moabites and Israelites were, uh, had this weird relationship, antagonistic. It was the Moabites, you remember, who enticed Israel into idolatry during the book of Numbers, think back a few years, and um, when King Balak had brought Balaam to come give a prophecy and, and to curse Israel, and that was all on the plains of Moab where that was happening. And um, Balaam told the people, well, you're never going to overcome them because they're protected by God, but if you want to get them, get them to sever the relationship with God, and then they're fair game. And that's what the Moabites did. The Moabite women, if you remember, tried to entice Israel into sexual immorality, into worshiping their gods, and into turning away from the covenant. And so that was during the time where Phineas came in and he stabbed the Israelite man and the Moabite woman who were having sex uh, religiously, orgiastically, in the presence of God. It's the most uh, profane act you could do at that time. And it was sort of flaunting in the face of, of the covenant God. Uh, who they were and who they weren't any longer. And Phineas was the one that put a stop to it by putting them to death. That was in the book of Numbers. So reading through Numbers, as a result of that, God said in Deuteronomy 
chapter 23, verse 3, God says, no Moabite will ever enter the assembly of the Lord to the tenth generation. There was such animosity between Israel and Moab that Moabites were not allowed to even enter into the, the, the covenant people as they assembled for worship. So that is scandalous now that all of a sudden, within ten generations, before that time, you have a Moabite woman who not only enters into Israel's community, but who also, we find out, becomes the ancestor of Israel's greatest king. So it's absolutely fascinating that, that Ruth is like a counter witness to what, what people would have taken as a blanket condemnation of all of the Moabites. And it's just like we saw in Numbers and Joshua when, when God says, you know, wipe out all these people or they destroyed everyone that lived. And we talked about how in the Bible, all doesn't mean always mean all. Everyone doesn't mean everyone. And there are always exceptions that God allows when people demonstrate covenant faith. Well, that's exactly what we have with Ruth. Because while Ruth starts out as a Moabite, by chapter 1, she has become an Israelite. And God never prohibited that. God never prohibited Gentiles from coming into His people. Israel from the beginning, remember Joshua and Caleb. Joshua, Israelite. Caleb, Gentile. But they were both the faithful remnant that left Egypt as adults and entered into Canaan as adults. So from the beginning, God's people... God's chosen people have always consisted of more than just ethnic descendants of a particular line of Abraham. It's always been about covenant faithfulness. John the Baptist said it. Jesus said it. You know, both of them were like, hey, God can raise up this offspring of Abraham even from these rocks. And Jesus told the religious leaders in Israel, in Jerusalem, that opposed him to his face. He said, they said, Abraham's our father. He said, no, Abraham's not your father. If Abraham was your father, you'd believe in me like Abraham did. Your father's the devil. Yikes. Saying that to the religious leaders at the heart of national Israel at the time. So in New Testament and in Old Testament, membership in covenant Israel was never ethnically based. It was always covenantally based. It's a key concept that you, you can trace it through the whole of the Bible. Um, Ruth is also a book that highlights God's covenant relationship. And we've talked about that word, chesed, that Hebrew word that means there's no English translation for it. That's why it's translated differently in every translation. And even in the same translation, they'll use different words. Sometimes it's kindness, sometimes it's favor, sometimes it's mercy, sometimes it's love, sometimes it's friendship, sometimes it's steadfast love. All of these terms, the word underneath those terms is chesed. And it's an unmerited, undeserved, uh, extravagant devotion to someone based on a covenant relationship that's been established. And it's what God shows Israel throughout their dealings in all of the Bible. And it's what Ruth and Naomi experience on a personal level. Because individuals could show chesed to each other when they entered into covenant relationships. In fact, that's what God said in the book of Micah. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, that's chesed, love chesed, and walk humbly with your God. So this is what God desires for His people, and this is what we see acted out in the book of Ruth on the vertical axis and on the horizontal axis between people. Ruth also answers the question, is God good for women? 
This is a question that's been raised throughout church history and and, in people's struggles, especially people that read the Bible and especially the Old Testament before you get to Jesus, how he elevates the status of women uh, around him from what they were in that culture. In the Old Testament, people have asked, is God good for women? We read passages sometimes that sound like God isn't good for women, that women had it worse, that women were uh, second fiddle, that women were... Uh, you know, an afterthought or, or a burden or you know, property or this and that. And Scripture writes into a world in which that is true, but Scripture tells us that that is a result of the fall. That is a result of sinfulness. So Scripture never pretends that misogyny and anti-women violence and, and oppression doesn't exist. It recognizes candidly that it exists. And it has always existed from the moment the very first sin entered into humanity. It's always existed that way. But it's always existed in contrast to what God desires. Remember back to the creation account when man and woman are created before Genesis 2 where we meet Adam and Eve. We have Genesis 1 where Adam, Adam, is male and female together. And both are the image of God. Only in Genesis 3 does sin come into the picture and turn a relationship of equals into a relationship of ruler over subjugated. And that continues throughout history in various cultures, but it was never God's original intent. And we see that in in the Old Testament, we get hints and shadows, these moments where God, it's kind of like shows us this is how it should be. And then in the New Testament, fully in in the ministry of Jesus, His treatment of women, where we get God yelling it with a megaphone, this is how it's going to be now. Pay attention. And the church hasn't always paid attention. uh, And culture certainly hasn't. But Ruth faces the issues that, that women deal with that men don't have to deal with. And it faces them in stark reality. Um, 90% of women who ever marry will be widows. Guys, we've never thought about that probably. But 9 out of 10 women who get married at some point will experience being a widow. Um, 75% of women when they die are single, not married, part of a family. This is something that in our culture today, we might put it off and not think about it because we have things like social security, life insurance, financial stability. If you were married, that you work towards that when your husband dies, then you have that. None of that existed in the ancient world. So the most destitute class in the ancient world was the widow the orphan, and the immigrant. Those were the three classes that were so vulnerable because they didn't have a family that was continuing to care for them and provide for them and that they were continued to be a part of. And so that's why the emphasis in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is so blatantly... um, uh, It's not even hidden at all. The emphasis for showing mercy... Like the way a society, and especially God's society, whether it's the Israel in the Old Testament or Jesus' followers in the New Testament, Jew and Gentile together, the litmus test for their faithfulness is how they treat the widow and the orphan and the immigrant. It's like you can say you believe all kinds of stuff, but when push comes to shove, how you treat the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant who basically symbolize the most 
a um, disadvantaged class of people in a society, how we treat them, God says that's actually the real indicator of your faith, not what you say with your lips or how high you raise your hands on a Sunday morning or how many Christian t-shirts you wear or how many Christian CDs you listen to or none of that stuff, or how you vote or you know, any of that. None of that matters if we're not caring for the widow and the orphan. And Ruth gives us a glimpse of what that looks like tangibly in the time of the judges for faithful people in a dark time in Israel's history. Ruth is, in our Bibles, it comes between uh, Judges and 1 Samuel because historically it is the link between the end of the Judges and the beginning of the monarchy. Ruth tells the story of David's genealogy, so it makes sense that it was put in between the two books because historically we're continuing in the chronology. But in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is not where it is in our Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is part of these five little books that are, that are put in the writing section. So later after, in, our, in Hebrew Bible, Ruth comes after Proverbs. And there's some significance to that in the fact that how does Proverbs end? Proverbs ends with Proverbs 31, the, para, the, 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 the proverb of the noble woman. And then in the book of Ruth, we get a full example of that, what that looks like. So Ruth coming right on the heels of Proverbs is very fitting from that perspective because it's like this is what the virtuous woman, this is what the noble godly woman is, and then boom, we get an example of a few of them right after that in this little book called Ruth. The other thing that's interesting about Ruth is those little five books, each one of them was read in a diff- at, at the, as part of a different Hebrew festival. The feasts in the Bible that we've looked at when we studied Leviticus, each of those over the centuries and over the millennia, uh, a, a different one of these five little books came to be associated with each of those holidays. And Ruth is associated with Shavuot, this festival of weeks, or what we know as Pentecost. So Pentecost happened between Passover and then there were uh, 49 days and plus another day and that's Pentecost, 50, Pentecost, that's what it means. So you had Passover and Passover signified the beginning of the barley harvest, the early harvest, and continued on through to the end of the wheat harvest. And then Pentecost was when the wheat harvest was brought in, the sheaves were gathered after they had grown and they were cut down and they were brought in. There was the time of the harvest and Pentecost celebrated the harvest. And lo and behold, the book of Ruth takes place during this time period. Ruth leaves and goes back with Naomi to, to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem during the time of the barley harvest. And the book goes through that period and her and Boaz, Ruth and Boaz end up together and it's during, she's, she gleans in his field during the harvest and brings the, you know, the harvest of wheat. So the book takes place in that section, so it makes sense that it would be read during Pentecost. But even more important than the agricultural calendar is Pentecost was the, the, the holiday in the Jewish calendar that celebrated and commemorated not just the, the, the bringing in of the harvest, but that coincided with God giving the law to Israel in Mount Sinai. So Pentecost, because 50 days after Israel left Egypt, the first Passover, they came to Mount Sinai. 
and they, gave, they received the law at Mount Sinai. So their agricultural cycle and God's sovereignty lined up with God's um, redemptive cycle of their history. So when they were celebrating the ingathering of the full bountiful harvest, that was also at the same time celebrating the covenant relationship with God that made that harvest possible to begin with. So Pentecost uh, Festival of Weeks is a celebration of the law and the covenant relationship that exists between Israel and God because of that law, because of Torah, because of what happened at Mount Sinai. And so it's only fitting then that this book about Ruth, this Gentile widow immigrant who comes into Israel from Moab, unites herself to God's people, enters into covenant with God's people, and therefore is not just allowed in Israel, but is totally grafted into Israel to the point where she becomes the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king because of her faithfulness to the God of the covenant and his faithfulness to those who are in covenant with him. Who are not like the book of Judges where they're flaunting the covenant, breaking the covenant, worshiping every other God, but Ruth like they're in the book of Ruth where they leave those gods. Ruth leaves her Moabite gods. Remember, the Moabites worshiped Chemosh. Chemosh was the god that assured their prosperity and their food supply. Chemosh subsisted on child sacrifices. And so Ruth leaves that and enters into faith with Israel when there's no hope in sight. Ruth is, unlike Abraham, Ruth doesn't leave with a promise that if she leaves, something amazing will happen. In fact, she leaves and goes with Naomi, with Naomi telling her, if you come with me, nothing good's going to happen. Stay here, go back home to your people, marry within your people, have your own kids again, start over, because there's nothing left with me but death. And so Ruth's faith, you could make the argument that it's even greater than Abraham's because he left because of a promise that God made him. Ruth left with no promise put in effect. She left because of her devotion to her mother-in-law and her desire to enter into and be part of that covenant people that she probably didn't even fully grasp the ramifications for. So Ruth is an amazing figure in that regard. Um, the other thing about the book of Ruth is it's really the book of Naomi. Naomi is really the main character of the book of Ruth. I mean, Ruth is a main character for sure, but Naomi is who the book begins with and Naomi is who the book ends with. And the book is about Naomi experiencing emptying, emptiness, having everything taken away, and then in the end, because of God's covenant faithfulness, everything being filled again. That's a theme, emptying and filling, that runs through this little book. Naomi is like a female Job. If Ruth is a female Abraham, Naomi is a female Job. Some people have always have, have kind of pictured Naomi as maybe a little busybody mother-in-law or kind of a naggy, whiny, complainy. Uh, you know, I've heard that character. Not, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Naomi is a woman who's experienced the depths of brokenness. As broken as you can get in the ancient Near East, that was Naomi, whose name means pleasant. And it was the exact opposite. Her life was anything but pleasant. 
And so the book of Ruth is this story of God doing what God does. Taking somebody who has no hope. Naomi comes back and says, I'm changing my name. Call me bitter from now on. Don't call me, it'd be like, you know, uh, I can't think of a good English equivalent. But basically like bitterness is what she has to be called when she comes back home. Not Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Because I've lost everything. And she... We see if we don't if we if we gloss over that just to get to the relationship part, get to the love story. You know, Ruth is sometimes characterized as a love story as well, and that even that is not really. I mean, Boaz is important, but he's Boaz isn't the hero of the story. Uh, he's just a faithful guy that does what's right, but he's not the hero of the story. The hero is God and his relationship with Naomi, and how he's looking after his faithful people, even in the midst of unfaithfulness and heartache and despair. And so if we miss any of these concepts, then we, we, we miss a lot of what makes Ruth so important. And again, the widow was seen as a cultural leftover in the ancient world. Like, oh, you don't have a husband, you don't have children, especially a childless widow, you don't have children, you, you're kind of a drain on us as a people, you know? So just kind of go. And that's how in today's cultures around the world, there are still places where that's the case, where widows are seen. And up until very recently in world history, in some cultures, widows would be expected to kill themselves when their husband died. The Indian practice of sati, throwing yourself onto the fire with your husband at his funeral pyre, was was a thing that happened within the lifetime of some people who are still alive today. Uh, and even in remote areas, may still go on, even though it's officially illegal. But it was because of this ingrained cultural, it's not just a Western thing, it's not just the, the Western patriarchy, no. This is worldwide, was this view that your worth as a woman was based on who you were connected to. And if you weren't connected to anybody, what good were you? And a lot of people even today may still feel that especially widows, especially single people. I mean, heck, I'm 40, I'll be 42 in a few months. I've never been married. I've never had a family. I want both. So I feel like this at times. Like, what do I have to offer? I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. I don't have a family. It's something that people that are single, something that people are either single through death or single through never marrying. It's something that is a real thing, even in a culture that doesn't overtly send that message but it may tangentially send that message. How many churches are family-friendly churches? What does that tell people who don't have a family who come to that church? That we're tolerated at best? Um, So it's not something that's done maliciously, but it it can be something that's done uh, unconsciously that has real effect on people. What good are you without somebody who you're connected to? And the book of Ruth takes that class of person And not only says, no, they're okay, leave them alone, but it says, no, I'm going to elevate them to the central narrative in the Bible in terms of the line of the Messiah. They are going to be a central key player. So by the time we get to the New Testament and read Matthew's genealogy, we read about Ruth in Matthew's genealogy, a Gentile woman in the line of Jesus. When women were not mentioned in genealogies, didn't matter who your mom was, it was who your father was. But yet Matthew goes out of his way to include four women in Jesus' genealogy. 
one of which is Ruth. So taking from the outskirts, from the, from the rejects of society, and bringing them front and center and saying, you know what, this, this, this immigrant, widow, childless woman in a new culture with nothing, that's who I'm going to bring the greatest king in Israel's history from. And that's just mind-blowing for so many people. So all of this is what we're going to see as we go through the book of Ruth. And again, it'll be four weeks most likely um, that we're going to study it. But keep these themes in mind. Read through the book of Ruth today. It's not long. You can do it. I believe in you. Um, Read through it regularly. Read through it in a couple of different translations. Get your Bible app on your phone. Read through different translations so you can kind of get a feel for the story and the different flavors of the text. And next week, we're going to come back and we're going to start at the beginning of ground zero of where it all starts in the darkest, worst situation imaginable. And then we're going to trace how God starts to bring good out of that uh, through the end. But we got to go now. So there's your intro to Ruth. Have a great week and we'll see you next week.